Hello, everyone. My name is Reese Karlinski, and this is Young History, episode 107 on Greece. The capital of this country is Athens, and the word Greek was not actually used by the Greeks to describe themselves. They refer to themselves as Hellens. This is in reference to the people of the Hellas region, which encapsulates most of Greece, and this name has its origins in the mythological figure of Helen, who is the son of Diuclalion and Pyra. It's an old origin myth. It says that these two created Helen, and Helen made home of this region and placed the Greeks there, and it kind of parallels a lot of things claimed in the book of Genesis. So, Greek itself is the Latin and anglicized word for the Grecoi, which were used to describe the people in the peninsula instead of using their term, Hellens. So, it's a Latin-Roman mix to get the word Greek all the way from them calling themselves Helen, and that's why when we talk about Greek culture, we say Hellenistic culture. And that is that. So, some other facts are that Greece is always one of the top five biggest producers of olive oil in the world. It gets 250 days of sunshine, and it is actually the most sexually active country on Earth, even over some of the more romantic countries you can imagine, such as Italy, France, or very open cultures like Brazil. Very interesting. So, on top of that, Greece is actually a conscription country that has all men over the age of 16 yes, they start at 16, serve for at least nine months in the military or be in the reserves. And this lasts all the way until their age 45. So if you become a Greek citizen at any one of those points and you're a man, get ready to strap them boots up, buddy. And voting is actually required by law, which is interesting, but which is unique to this country and isn't seen in many other ones. But what it's done here to kind of, you know, balance out some of the issues they've had recently. On top of all this, Greek may actually be the oldest continuously spoken language in the world. And shout out to the Song Dynasty for possibly making traditional Chinese this language. So we'll see. I say one of, it may be the oldest one, but it's definitely one of the oldest spoken languages going back at least 3,000 years. And with that, that gets us to the beginning, where I don't want to dilly-dally, and I kind of want to get right into this thing. So, truly, thank you guys so much for being here. As you guys can imagine, this is going to be a bit of a long one, because Greece has been writing its history down for north of 3,000 years. So we're going to figure stuff out. So, definitely glad you guys are here, definitely glad to do this one, and definitely glad to learn more about the great country of Greece. So, one more time, my name is Rich Karlinski, this is Young History, and this is Greece. You guys have a good one. Our origins begin around 30,000 BC with the remains of humans from the Mesolithic era being uncovered in Franchi. And then we get to the Minoans. So the Minoan Greeks, as they are now known, had ancestors in the Cyclades Islands just above the island of Crete. These were the Cycladic people. They had pottery and marble figurines that were very advanced for the time. And under the rule of Minos, the king of the Cretes, around 3500s, the Minoans were born because they are named for their king, Minos. They were based in the Nosos Palace on Crete, and at this same time, other palaces began to pop up around the island. Archaeologists have uncovered a lot of pottery that seems to correlate with these strange records found here too. And these records are of different animals that aren't present on the region, like bulls, dolphins, and things like that. 
This has led people to believe that Knossos was a headquarters for trade in the Mediterranean as it started to advance, and the Minoans very likely worked together to gain trade control over the Kyclades Islands. And Minoan pottery can actually be found across the Aegean Sea, especially in the island of Thera, which was uncovered recently and has been dated to about 1700 to 1500 BC. And one of the major historical texts we have that refer to Minoan Greece is actually the Minotaur, the famous one that comes from Greek mythology. Because the Greek story tells of a labyrinth and a bull-like creature needing to be killed in order to free the mainland Greeks from a curse. In reality, the complex palace of the Minoan Crete was the labyrinth. The Minotaur were the many bulls that the Minoans used for food and strength and got through trade. And the curse refers to the fact that the Minoans used piracy in the Aegean to establish themselves as a headquarters for trade. And that's kind of where historians see the connection between this story and the human history. So this story is the reason historians believe that things like this happened in human history as compared to the Greek mythological history, that is the Minotaur being this kind of bull beast creature. We see it as more of a symbolism of things that were actually happening there in more proven human history. And around the 1400s, Minoan society collapsed and fully disappeared, and it's not no why this happened, but then we get to the Mycenaean Greeks. They get their start when Indo-Europeans crossed into the Greek peninsula around 2000 BC. Indo-Europeans is kind of a general term for anyone speaking languages that eventually pop up in Europe, and it's kind of people that came from the region in between Europe and India, and then moved in here to kind of create early European culture and linguistic traditions. These people pushed out some of the local population and then merged with the rest that did not move. The mixing of the Indo-Europeans with the old language helped form early Greek. In the 1500s BC, the major cities such as Mycenae, Athens, and Thebes were constructed. They were clearly a major influence. Okay. There was clearly a major influence from the Minoans because of the artwork and style that can be found in the major cities, especially as Mycenae. The Mycenaeans were ruled by kings that had Minoan-style palaces of their own. Around 1200 BC, the cities fortified their borders with walls and other structural advancements, and Linear B was the language that was recorded in writing at this time. This was adopted from the Minoan writing style, and it started to tell of the famous Greek mythology. Poseidon, Athena, and Ares were all mentioned in this really early form of writing. And it would be not long after this that we see the Bronze Age collapse. Greek writing disappeared as the Hittites and Egyptian civilizations withered. This is very unexplained, but there are theories. A leading one is that Greek trade routes were faltering due to the competition, but the city of Troy was using its wealth to help stimulate the trade economy in the region. Once Troy was destroyed by the Mycenaean Greeks in the Trojan War, this sent the Aegean city-states into spiral because there wasn't a center for wealth anymore and nobody was pushing money into the economy that was kind of failing. The Mycenaeans hoped that destroying Troy would grant the Greeks access to the rich trade routes, but the severity of the war meant that nobody was really a winner here because it tanked the last bit of trade economy and killed anyone that was kind of smart enough to revive it. The Mycenaeans seem to have fled from the Aegean around this time, right after the Greek city-states fell in 1180 BC. And this is proven by the fact that Egyptian pharaohs would spend the next hundred years fighting off new people groups that seemed to be Greek. There were also Mycenaean style there were also Mycenaean style pottery. There was also Mycenaean style pottery found in Palestine right around this time as well, so this kind of proves an early Greek diaspora. 
Dark Ages Greece is this time right after the Bronze Age collapse, which lasts from 1100 to 800 BC. Philosophy and other advancements halted as the declining states struggled with this new age. Economy was terrible and just nothing great came out of this time period. It's also considered a dark age because of how little history we actually have from it. And now getting into the ancient Greece we're much more familiar with. Apollos was the name of a city-state that had formed over time since the Bronze Age collapse. And some of these common ones and some of the most important ones were the city, were the police. Some of the most important ones were the police of Corinth, Sparta, and Thebes. They were very powerful right around 900 to 800 BC. This is also when Latin popped up because the Greeks adopted the Phoenician alphabet and added vowels to it. This is also when Latin popped up because the Greeks adopted Phoenician alphabet and then added vowels to it. Greeks began holding the Olympic Games in 776 BC to test the strength of its people and honor the gods with it. Infrastructure was advanced as massive sculptures and things of that sort were built, but there were also many colonies established throughout the Mediterranean. Democracy, and also during this time of growth, is when democracy in its most recognizable form was birthed in Athens, when the surrounding area of Ionia agreed to the government gaining a constitution and becoming a real deal democracy for the first time pretty much in the world. And Ionian Greeks saw Athens as the seat of power and those living in the Peloponnese, known as Dorians, hailed to Sparta. The Ionian Revolt occurred from 499 to 493 BC and saw the Ionians break from the Persian control with the help of the Athenians. Over time, the city of Athens began to grow as a regional power and expanded trade very far. One of the turning points in Athens' early history was winning the Battle of Marathon against 25,000 Persians in 490 BC. This upset victory, as well as the creation of a huge naval fleet, made Athens a much more significant polis than it had ever been. Not long after, we saw the Second Persian War occur, and by this point, there were hundreds of polis in the Greek peninsula, but when the Persians mobilized again, only 31 of them actually joined forces to defend themselves, and Thebes actually allied with Persia against the rest of the Greeks. In 480 BC, the Battle of Thermopylae was fought between a small band of Spartans and thousands upon thousands of Persians. The Spartans were able to resist this Persian onslaught for a long time, but eventually the outnumbered Spartans were defeated by this great army. Today, this is one of the most famous last stands in human history because of how brave this small group of a few hundred Spartans were able to be in the face of certain death facing this army that was at least 10,000 men strong. And this really showed how valuable Spartan land troops were compared to the common soldier because these 300 or so Spartans just wiped Persians off the maps. Not long after was the Battle of Salamis, which occurred when Athenians met with the Spartans in the Isthmus of Corinth and battled against the Persian navy. This eventually became a victory for the Greeks, who were able to prevent Persia from taking over completely, but they were very much helped by the fact that a huge fraction of Persian ships either sunk or deserted before the battle began. And then we see one of the most, then we see one of the decisive battles of the war, and this is the Battle of Platea, which happened when the city of Thebes supported their Persian allies in attacking the city of Platea, and the Spartans joined up with the Athens to defend the city from Thebes and Persia in a very bloody battle. But by the end of it, the war ended and Athens had established itself as a domineering city-state, Sparta had established itself as a true military power, and the Persians were once again defeated. And the classical age began after this. Pericles lived from 495 to 429 BC, and he wanted to beautify the region. This was seen in Athens above anywhere else because of the, Pan of the Parthenon that he 
constructed in honor of the goddess Athena, who is the goddess of wisdom. Wisdom would actually continue to be a center point of Athens and the Greek peninsula throughout this period. So now we're going to bounce to a few of the guys. Pythagoras is one of the most important ones. He lived from 570 to 495 BC and is famous for the Pythagorean theorem, which states that in a right angle triangle, the square of the length of the hypotenuse, the side opposite the triangle, is equal to the sum of the squares of the lengths of the other two sides. This, this theorem has profound applications in geometry and trigonometry and is still widely used in various fields. Pythagoras founded a philosophical and religious community in Croton, a Greek colony in southern Italy. The Pythagorean school was devoted to the study of mathematics, music, astronomy, and philosophy. It also had mystical and religious aspects to it, and its members adhered to a strict set of ethical and aesthetic principles. It was actually one of his students from this school that proved the existence of irrational numbers. Pythagoras actually drowned this student because irrational numbers went against the beliefs of Pythagoras's math cult. And if you couldn't think anything could get lamer than math club, there definitely is still math cult which happened all the way back in Greece. And this is a thing you should keep in mind as we go through these different philosophers and other thought leaders at this time, is that these new discoveries made by people like Pythagoras and the ones we'll mention soon were so profound for the time that people started to create literal cults around worshiping the beliefs these people started to preach. And it got so bad that people would kind of do what Pythagoras did and kill and stand up to anyone that tried to challenge their belief, which is very counterintuitive because Pythagoras and all the ones that we're going to mention stand up to the status quo and say they made a new discovery, but people got so fixated on what their idol believed, they would deny new discoveries and things like that. That's why there was this killing of someone who discovered irrational numbers. And this goes on for a very long time. And there's not only cults in this thing, but there's also really crazy cults about the gods. There's cults that worshipped Zeus, cults for Athena, cults for all that, and people lived in the way they thought their god wanted them to and would make sacrifices in the god or goddess's name. They would kill people for them, all sorts of stuff like this. And this goes on throughout the period of Greece, the classical age, which is usually seen in this light of great civilization and luxury and all this. It was very, very tense, and people were doing crazy things. People were taking children from their homes and baptizing them into their weird faith and their cult, and people would birth their child into it. People would sacrifice kids. It was it was crazy, and it went on through the entire classical age and went away once this whole region eventually converted to Christianity, but cult culture was a big thing even in the most decadent, growthful period of Greek history, which most of the world takes inspiration from. So it's not a shock that today in yeehaw ass parts of my country and other parts of the world, there are some crazy cults still. And bouncing back to some of the other great minds is we're going to talk about the first of the major big three philosophers, and that's Socrates, who was the man who influenced Plato. And then Plato was the one that influenced the most famous one, Aristotle. The cults can be seen, especially with the people like Aristotle and Socrates, because once again, they were ones that had specific thought beliefs about the way you should live your life. And when people heard this, they said, okay, I'm going to live my life like this every day. And anyone who isn't doing this is going against me, the man who represents me, and everything I live for. So they would kill them, and they would be cults against these people. And the thing about Aristotle, too, is that he actually was one of the men that helped influence the mindset of Alexander the Great, because his mother, Alexander's mother, actually helped shape Alexander's mind by having men like Aristotle teach him. And then the one that's very important to us is Herodotus. He lived from 44 to 525 BC and is seen as the father of history. Shout out to my boy. 
And then Hippocrates lived from 460 to 370 BC. And he became known as the father of medicine. And clearly this was true because he lived to be 90 in ancient Greece, doing things that no one else did to extend his lifetime to literally double and sometimes triple what the life expectancy was. So this guy definitely knew what he was talking about, doing something we weren't. And most of this growth and ability to be peaceful and full of thought and drinking wine and all these things that Greece gets comes from the Delian League. They were formed after the Persian invasions and the league was created by Athens. This league saw Athens expand a military alliance across most of the Aegean Sea as a defense pact against the Persians. But then Athens started to acquire a monetary or military tribute as a fund to defend against the Persians. But this is not how it went for long. The collected riches for a long time were stored on the island of Delios, which is a sacred, very well-protected island in the Mediterranean. And it's the reason that the league got its name, Delios, Delian, Delian League for the Delios Island. But the collected riches that were stored on Delios ended up being moved to Athens. Once Athens started to use this wealth to create great structures like temples and things that could quote-unquote protect the wealth. But once the wealth was literally in Athens, Athens continued to use it to help their city flourish and not even put it back into the alliance or put it into overall military spending. They just did things to fortify and beautify their city. And at this point, Athens did something even shadier, which was actually signed a secret treaty with Persia to prevent Persian invasion from happening. So this is one of the earliest cases of kind of like imperial exploitation where Greece kind of goes all the way around and is like, okay, we're all part of a defensive pact and then takes anything they want and uses it to make them very, very rich. Sounds familiar. We do that even now, but we did that as America and the European countries for a very, very long time throughout the 17 and 1800s CE. So definitely crazy. And the growth of Athens definitely worried Sparta, but Sparta didn't care until Athens actually forms an alliance with the oldest enemy of Sparta, the city of Argos. And this led instantaneously to the early Peloponnesian War from 460 to 445 BC. This was mostly a cold war, and the two sides made geopolitical moves to block their opponent's trade and defend their own. And there was roughly peace for about 15 years after this war ended due to some agreements, but the more major fighting occurred in the much more famous Second Peloponnesian War, which is usually just referred to as the Peloponnesian War, because this is the one that you get all the great stories out of. This one saw both cities focus heavily on hunkering down their defenses. Sparta was in a great place because of its location in the Peloponnese, but Athens was much more open. This is why Athens started to create giant walls defending both their grand city and its ports. The Spartans were far superior when it came to military, so they kept trying to take the Athenians out of their city into an open battle. But a thing to keep in mind is that the Spartans are not great on the naval front, and Athenians absolutely are. The Spartans kept trying to draw this whole open battle thing up by burning and raiding villages and farms in the view of the Athenians. But Athenians did not fall for this, though, because even though people had been living on these lands forever, they didn't engage the Spartans because they knew it would kind of spell certain death to go one-on-one with Sparta. And battles between the two commonly occurred at allied city-states, where Sparta would back their allies with troops and Athens would do the same. And there were many other fights across the peninsula. Platea was actually raised to the ground after four years of defense. And Sparta lost a major naval battle at Naupactos. Pylos saw 120 Spartans captured by Athenians, which was the first time this had apparently ever happened. And Sparta, eventually smartened up, launched a land invasion on Amphipolis, which was a shipbuilding harbor that literally has 
the basis for amphibian in the name. So after the boatyard was chopped to bits and Sparta was eventually able to charge in and secure a victory, a 50-year peace treaty was signed between the two. This treaty lasts only three years because Athens made an alliance once again with Argos and Sparta just didn't stand for it once again. So in 405, Sparta would make the unpredicted move of creating an alliance with Persia because Persia had a lot of interest in removing Athenian influence from Western Anatolia, which is the Western part of Turkey today. So Persia sent hundreds of ships and a lot of funding to Sparta and Sparta quickly ended the war. After fighting throughout the entire fifth century BC, so, Persia sent hundreds of ships and a lot of funding to Sparta, and Sparta quickly ended the war after fighting throughout the entire 5th century. After the war, Sparta would maintain military and political supremacy over the Greek peninsula, but Athens would continue to be a hub of philosophy, education, and art. So, after Sparta was victorious in the Second Peloponnesian War, they began flaunting their victory and trying to enact the influence across the entire peninsula. This didn't sit well with pretty much any of those in the Greek peninsula, so another war would break out. Athens, Argos, and Corinth, which was formerly Sparta's ally in the last war, as well as Thebes, formed an alliance to do battle against Sparta. But somehow they were able to snag an unlikely ally against Sparta, Persia, who was just on Sparta's side. And this war kind of went off and on again, and the battles were here and there, but it ended in a stalemate eventually. And there really wasn't much change after it, but it definitely made the Spartans humble up a bit, because especially as the city started to decline, it kind of realized that it wasn't this great power it used to be. Not long after this, another war happened between Sparta and Thebes. But after fighting went on for a little bit, Athenians actually led the brokering of this peace deal between them. And the peace deal was about one day from completion, when the Thebians actually wanted to edit it in order to make themselves look more powerful, because Sparta surrendered for all of its allies in this peace treaty, and then Thebes kind of wanted to do the same thing, because Sparta agreed to this treaty on behalf of all its allies, where Thebes didn't do this, so to make itself look strong, Thebes wanted to do the same thing, and Sparta denied this, and instantaneously war was declared on Sparta again. A land army amassed for both Thebes and Sparta, which was shocking, because nobody ever actually wanted to pick a fight on land with Sparta, but in a shocking turn of events, and against anyone's best prediction, that strong right side of Thebes, which became very famous because of how many battles it had won, especially for the fact that it was considered like this wall of lovers, as every person on the line of the shield wall was matched with their lover, and they both used the shield. It was crazy. They were actually able to use this tactic to defeat the Spartans. And for the next 10 years, literally nobody challenged Thebes for anything because they were literally so shocked that they beat the Spartans that they actually feared them. Athens and Sparta began to decline because of their overall size and the lack of military growth that came at this time, leading them to become very weakened states right around mid-300s BC. I mentioned that date because that is when Philip II of Macedon started to take power. Philip II of Macedon was born in the Macedonian region, but was raised in Thebes and was heavily influenced by General Epimondus. He learned major military tactics from this general and rose to power as a general once he grew up. He returned to Macedon to militarily support his brother's claim to the throne, and then after his brother's passing, he became the king of Macedon. He then led great military campaigns to defeat the Illyrians, Thracians, and Tyonians. He actually ended up uniting all this land by 342. Then he conquered all the way to Boeotia, which is a city near Athens, by 338. And this is when the Athenians and Thebians started to mount a defense against Philip, but then Philip used his hoplites to thin out the opposing hoplites by attacking at this kind of offsetting angle to push them into a weird place. And this allowed for Philip's son, 
Alexander to lead the strongest hoplites into the strongest Thebians, while Alexander himself rode the cavalry into a charge into the Thebians to swarm and kill them. And then Philip had now conquered almost the entire Greek peninsula, which made him both the king of Macedon and Greece, but he ended up dying not long after in 336, which left the throne to his son, Alexander, eventually to be known as Alexander the Great. And this became a very interesting unity because Macedonians were seen as Greek culturally because they believed in the same gods, spoke the same language, and they competed in similar things like the Olympic Games. But the thing is, Greece was the one that was democratic, and the Macedonians just didn't believe democracy had a point. They believed still in their king system, hence Philip II being the king of Macedon, and they believed that putting all your trust into this one person was smarter than having up to a bunch of people that might not have good judgment because they always saw their king as blessed by the gods and favored because, as I said, they believed in the exact same gods as the Greeks. And once Philip died, there was a lot of uprising that came because people believed that Alexander was too young and they started to doubt him and all this, and that was a big thing Alexander actually had to deal with. But after suppressing these uprisings, he actually improved the military and trained his troops even better than his father did, and by this point he was only 20 years old. And not long after this would begin his war against Persia. Alexander said that he would do this in order to avenge the Persian invasion of Greece from centuries before, by invading Persia itself. Alexander found many early victories as he marched across western Anatolia to conquer Persian ports in the Mediterranean, and then he began to battle against King Darius directly. This happened at the Battle of Issus in 333 BC, which started out with an advantage towards the Persians who actually ambushed Alexander and his army, but Alexander was actually able to repel this attack and find victory. And a thing that was ridiculous on top of this was that King Darius was so confident that he would win this battle, he actually traveled here on a convoy with his wife and child so that they could see him win this victory. But since he ends up fleeing and losing the battle, Alexander ends up taking his wife and child as hostages. And then this leads to a brief negotiation where King Darius attempts to reason with Alexander, and Alexander allegedly replied saying that he was the future king of Asia, and King Darius had no right to speak to him. And on top of this, there's also rumors that King Darius's wife began to fall in love with Alexander because of the young, strong, talented man he was, as opposed to King Darius, who was now a loser. Then the siege of Tyre occurred. This was an island state that was attempting to remain neutral in the conflict, but Alexander was becoming very full of himself, very greedy, and wanted to conquer anything he could. So he gave them the ultimatum of either you're with us or you're against us. And this led to the Siege of Tyre. Alexander actually spent eight months employing his engineers to build a land bridge with siege engines to get access to this island. And he was so frustrated about how long this took that in the battle at the Siege of Tyre, Alexander and his men blasted through the front gates and killed at least 10,000 men here and then enslaved 10,000 more. Not long after this, Alexander marched his army south and conquered all of Egypt, thus freeing it from Persian control. And he was welcomed with open arms because of how much the Persians hated being under... Uh, and he was welcomed with open arms because of how much the Egyptians hated being under Persian rule and was actually named the Pharaoh of Egypt. Alexander went on to take many sacred journeys across Egypt, such as the one to the town of Siwa, and this was very consistent with the way he had acted in previous invasions. Very similar to kind of what the Mongols would do in the future, which is wherever you go, you kind of adapt to their culture to maintain stability. He did this, and that is a reason he maintained such a strong empire, because he kept cultural, religious, and regional traditions very strong, even once the Greeks came in. And the Battle of Guagmela was the next major one, which was fought in 331 
BC and would mark the second time Alexander and Darius met on the battlefield. Alexander was also famous for being one of the few leaders this time to launch reconnaissance missions so that he could scout out how many troops were coming, what they were looking to do, and where they were moving. The battle was very hard fought but ended up being a victory for Alexander and Darius fled once again. After fleeing Alexander for a long time, Darius was eventually betrayed by one of his generals in eastern Persia, which led to all the remaining satraps, which were like governors of Persia, to surrender to Alexander, thus making him king of Persia as well. And the story goes that one of these generals, the one that betrayed him, killed Darius, and then once he presented this to Alexander, Alexander actually had this man killed because not only did he kill the king and did Alexander saw that as wrong, Alexander was pretty butthurt that he got his kill stolen and wanted to be the one to end Darius's life and make himself king that way as opposed to the way it happened. And after taking over all of Persia and Hellenizing it heavily, final expansion started to occur when Alexander spread the empire all the way to northwestern India. He married a Persian wife and married off his generals to other Persian royalty across the region. Alexander started to march back to Greece, which is when he made his final stop at Babylon. And it would be here that Alexander would die at the age of 32 from either fever or poison. His empire fell into chaos as there was no true successor to the massive thing he was holding together. And his generals fell into chaos fighting to control his empire. But the lands were eventually split up by his generals Ptolemy in Egypt, Seleucus in Persia to create the Seleucid Empire, and Greek city-states which fell under Macedonian rule. And despite the empire splitting, Greek culture would be huge in influencing this whole region for hundreds of years. Even in Afghanistan, which is very far from Greece, especially by land, there have been Greek pottery things found that date back to this time of Alexander and the next few hundred years after. So Greek influence is very, very big throughout the region, throughout the greater continent. It's huge. And then we see the Hellenistic period, and for this I'm going to go through the things that happened and then kind of the effects of the Hellenistic period. So, the League of Corinth was actually formed between Corinth, Sparta, and Athens, and this is all kind of going on in this time period from 323 BC to 31 BC, which is the overall time of the Hellenistic period. We also get an introduction from a little other power pretty soon. And these three cities that I mentioned, Corinth, Sparta, and Athens, united for the sake of challenging Macedon power in the region, but they were eventually defeated by the Macedonians and actually had to sign treaties that weakened their democracy and power. So Macedon usurped power again, and there was little the Greek city-states could do about it. And then once this was defeated in the south, the Achaean League was formed in the Peloponnesian Peninsula, and this would be a long-lasting unity that would challenge the enemies of Greece, because now is the time we're actually using that term Greece to describe the whole peninsula as a unified thing because after the Macedon Wars and Alexander's expansion and his fathers, Greece was now seen as a united entity and they acted as one too because even though they still had their own types of governments across their different cities, they were starting to form into one united group much more and more around this time. And the Phyric Wars started to go on at this point, which were led by General Phyrus against the Romans in 280 BC. This was fought in the Italian peninsula, and Greece ended up losing all of its holdings here, Pyrrhus. So then we would see the Pyrrhic Wars, which were led by a Greek general named Pyrrhus against the Romans in 280 BC. This was fought in the Italian peninsula, and Greece ended up losing all of its holdings there. Pyrrhus would go to battle against the Macedonians, which succeeded until he literally died on the battlefield, and the Macedonians began invading the Greek peninsula. The Hellenistic period brought a lot of change across the region. 
and this is where we're going to get into kind of the cultural changes and all that. So there was a lot of exchange between the different cities and art, philosophy, technology, all that. Greek culture itself, which had a profound impact on all these things, spread across the entire empire. And this meant that, you know, Greek culture was being seen in Egypt and it was seen in the Levant and it was seen across the Seleucid Empire, which went all the way to Central Asia and farther. And this cultural amalgamation kind of resulted in a distinctive blend of Greek, Persian, and Egyptian lifestyles in each of the different territories because of how much exchange was going on. And major cities like Alexandria and Egypt became a major center of commerce. This was also seen in cities like Antioch in the Seleucid Empire and Paragamon in Anatolia. And they were places that really facilitated trade across the region, acted as financial centers, knowledge hubs, all that stuff. And these cities were known for the libraries that held these things. And the Hellenistic period witnessed extensive trade networks connecting a lot of different parts of the empire and beyond. And then trade routes such as the Silk Road allowed exchanges to happen even further because now you could get to far west Europe, you could get to far east Asia, all sorts of things like that. But this has all kind of come crashing down when the Macedonian Wars occurred. They were fought from 214 to 148 BC between Rome and Greece. Rome marched in and won battles, which forced King Philip V of Macedon to give up all occupied territories outside of the Macedon region. And Rome defeated Perseus and his army in 168 BC. In 148 BC, the last battle between Rome and Macedon was fought. Rome had its final march in Greece in 146 BC against the Achaean League. And there were many battles, but it all ended with Rome conquering Greece entirely in 146 BC. Rome had to crush a rebellion in 87 BC, and Athens fell. And the reason that I earlier said the kind of Hellenistic period ends in 31 BCE is because the Ptolemaic kingdom in Egypt was, of course, under Ptolemy, and it fell under the defeat of Cleopatra the Seventh when Octavian, later known as Augustus, defeats her and Mark Anthony to defend kind of the honor of his uncle, Julius Caesar, who had died for this whole situation. And this occurs in 31 BC. And then we kind of get into Roman rule, which saw political and military power of the Greek city-states stripped. And this did not mean an end Greece itself, because Greek philosophy, education, and culture remained very powerful and influential throughout the entirety of Roman rule. So much so that Rome very often sent its scholars to Greece to get a better education because of the fact that Rome was so much less education-based and educated than Greece ever was. And Christianity was introduced to Greece in the first century CE, while still under Roman control. And Paul the Apostle actually came to Athens himself to preach the teachings of the Lord. Greek culture adapted to Christianity very quickly, and this allowed for Christianity to spread a lot faster. And this was because Greek was the lingua franca across Anatolia and parts of Persia, thanks to Alexander the Great spreading his empire so far. So the preachings of Christianity spread very quickly, and it's actually a fact, too, that the Old Testament of the Bible was originally written in Greek. The Eastern Roman Empire inherited control of Greece when Western Rome fell in 476, and Justinian I, who was one of the most famous and prolific emperors of the Byzantium Empire, expanded even further across Greece and deep into the Balkans, and then he led many arts and advancement projects throughout the empire that also saw Greek be built up, then, he was also smart in seeing that Greek culture was incredible and was very good for growth, so he also made sure that Greek philosophy was taught throughout his empire and actually delved very deep into it himself. And in the 1000s, Greece remained under Byzantine rule throughout the entire time I just said throughout this, and Constantinople served as the capital of the empire. Major cities in Greece like Thessaloniki 
and Athens retained their importance as centers of trade, commerce, and culture. Throughout this, though, the Byzantine Empire was definitely facing a lot of issue with different nations. The Normans, coming from Normandy and Greece, started to work their way over. And then Venetians started to try and take different Greek islands. And then, of course, the Ottomans were starting to creep their way in little by little. And in the 1200s, the Ottomans began encroaching on Balkan territories and started to chip away at Greece. In 1453, the fall of Constantinople led to full Ottoman rule in Greece, which would be very disastrous for the nation. Ottoman rule was defined heavily by discrimination against ethnic Greeks. The Greeks were taxed extra hard, rights were limited, and worst of all, they faced the Dev Shirme. The Dev Shirme was a policy that had children of Greek descent taken from their homes, converted to Islam, and then forced to be soldiers and servants. And it was so bad that a significant percentage, 20% or higher, of the Genissaries, which were one of the highest ranking soldiers of the Ottoman Empire, were actually of Greek descent because of the Devshirme policy yanking them from their homes as children. And we're definitely speed running a lot of this history here, but it's because Greece just gets kicked in the teeth here. And under Ottoman rule, they get suppressed. And that time period going from Rome to Eastern Rome to the Ottomans is just a whole lot of Greece trying to hold on to its culture while suffering under these different powers and then getting to its worst suffering under the Ottomans. So now we're jumping to the late 1500s when Dionysios Silopapophos represented the importance of the Eastern Orthodox Church as a bishop, and he started to preach the teachings of God and preach that they, the teachings, were telling the Greeks that they were eventually going to be independent and that they had to fight against the Ottomans. And this resulted in many revolts occurring under his leadership, which in turn led to his torture and execution for all to see. And a fighting force was also formed at this time that would last for a very long time in different small groups called the Kleftes. They were a mountain rebel group that challenged the Ottomans, and they launched assaults on Ottoman convoys whenever the chance came up. And Ottoman power began to decline in the 1700s, and this allowed for people like Adamantios Korais and Rigas Ferias to lead intellectual movements to guide the mindset of Greece towards wanting independence. And Korias promoted... Phi-Hellenism, which was the love and admiration for Greek culture and history. He aimed to inspire a sense of pride in the Greek people for their heritage and to encourage Greeks to reconnect with their classical past. His work contributed to the renewed interest in Greek literature, philosophy, and history, which of course is something they were very, very proud of once they really started to rediscover it. Corius also emphasized the importance of civic virtue and democracy as the ideals that were not only deeply rooted in Greek history, but also were, in his eyes, in the eyes of the Greeks, the rights of every man. And then when it comes to Rigas, he was very heavily influenced by the Enlightenment, especially with the ideals of freedom and individual rights. He believed that education, knowledge, and rational thinking were essential to the process of liberation for a society. And Rigas was one of the main people who recognized the importance of language in preserving and promoting national identity. He wrote and published works in Greek. He contributed to the revitalization of the Greek language and the spreading of ideas among the Greek population being told in Greek by Greeks for Greeks. The first major attempt at a coordinated rebellion occurred in 1770. It was known as the Orlov Revolt. It was led by Russian naval officer Alexei Orlov in cooperation with the local Greek leaders. The revolt aimed at establishing a Greek state, but it was ultimately crushed by the Ottoman forces. And this didn't stop the Greek desires, and it culminated in 1821. With the outbreak of the uprising on March 25, 1821, which is today celebrated as Greece's National Day, a true uprising had begun. The rebellion was started in the Peloponnese region, mainly in the town of Calavirtia, and quickly spread across Greece. 
The revolt gained momentum as Greek forces composed of both soldiers and people who had now just wanted to fight. The revolt gained momentum as Greek forces composed of both regular troops and irregular fighters engaged in a series of battles against Ottoman forces. The rebellion was not uniform across all regions as various Greek leaders and groups fought against Ottoman control independently, and this fully began the Greek War of Independence. It was fought from 1821 to 1832 and was led by General Theodoros Kolokotronis, which led the Greeks to many victories like the Battle of Thervinakia, where the Turks were crushed by the Greeks, who advanced to a tactical victory. This was also a battle anchored in the Greek women who stood up to the Turkish oppressors. The main ones were Manto, Mavroginios, and Lascarina Bobulina. They were women that captained ships against the Turks and funded many military campaigns and fought very hard until their deaths. The siege of Tripolista was one of the Greeks' bloodiest moments in the war. After sacking the city of Tripolista, thousands of Turks were captured and then executed so that they could be made an example of to the Ottomans. And of course, the Turks did not take this lying down. Turkish atrocities started to happen throughout the war, and they continued till the end of it. One of the major ones was the Chios Massacre, which saw tens of thousands of Greek civilians killed. And then in the third siege of Misolongi, which happened from 1825 to 1826, thousands more Greek leaders, thousands more Greeks were killed, and some major leaders were beheaded. And this was the Turkish reply to the earlier siege of Tripolista, which was kind of brutality met with brutality. And this is the one that drew a lot of attention from European powers everywhere else. Egypt started to fight alongside the Turks and made the war even harder for the Greeks, so it was time for the European powers to get involved. The Battle of Navarino occurred in 1827. Britain, Russia, and France united their powers against the navy of the Ottomans at the Battle of Navarino in order to cripple their navy. Once the navy was crippled, the Greeks were able to overwhelm the fighting force of the Turks on land and establish independence not long after. But there were still more Greek provinces to liberate. Charilaus Tricopus led the country into an age of advancements and infrastructure development. This allowed Greece to be the first host of the modern Olympics in 1896. Sparadon Lewis was a Greek track athlete that won the first marathon of the Summer Olympics, bringing gold home to Greece once again. And then the Greco-Turkish War of 1897 occurred, but ended in a brutal defeat for the Greeks, as ethnic Greek provinces would now remain under Ottoman control, but they would roll on. Eleftherios Venizelos was prime minister. While Greece recaptured much of the ethnic Greek lands and fought alongside the Allies in World War I, while Greece recaptured much of the ethnic Greek land and fought alongside the Allies in World War I. But the interwar period would be very tumultuous for the Greeks. The Greco-Turkish War was once again fought from 1918 to 1922. Greece made many strong gains in the first part of the war, but were eventually pushed out of Turkish territory. On top of this, Turkey was also committing the Greek genocide. For almost nine years between 1913 and 1922, any Greek within the border of Turkey were pretty much targeted for death. It resulted in a total of 347,000 Greek deaths. This conflict ended in 1923 with the population exchange between Greece and Turkey. This population exchange involved the forced relocation of approximately 1.2 million Greeks from Turkey to Greece and around 400,000 Muslims from Greece to Turkey. This included not only the exchange of civilians, but also the displacement of people that had lived in their respective regions for centuries. The exchange left a legacy of loss as families were separated, properties were abandoned, and ancestral lands were left behind. The deep impact it had on those that experienced the exchange is still felt today and is taught from elders to the people living now. 
Then, the Great Depression began in 1929. It shattered the frail Greek economy. Unemployment skyrocketed and the economy was too weak to help itself because after so much fighting throughout the 1800s and early 1900s, Greece was not what it used to be. Not only was it not this beautiful place of philosophy and all that that it was in the ancient world, it had been occupied for thousands of years at this point and now was weak and poor from this war that had just fought because it costed everything they had to get through it. And then World War II would occur. Greece pushed for neutrality, but Mussolini and the Italians invaded, thus yanking them into the war. The Greeks impressed everyone when they held off the Italian offensive by themselves, but this ended when German reinforcements came and used blitzkrieg tactics to wipe out the Greek defense. This would begin the Nazi occupation of Greece. Occupation was enacted top to bottom as factories, towns, schools, and more were entirely taken over by the Nazis. Thousands of people were starved to death, and thousands more were executed, and this is on top of the hundreds of thousands of Jews that were captured and killed within Greece. This did not halt Greek resistance, though, as the Greek fighters fought and killed the opposing force any chance they got. There's many stories of Nazis making routine sweeps and ending up chopped to bits and found in bags and things like that because of the way the Greeks fought. They were scrappy. People were using butcher knives and anything they could to get by. And there's a lot of credit that needs to be given to the Jewish Greeks because not only were many of them in hiding or being harbored by a Greek citizen, but when it came to fight, some of them were scrappy. And there's many reports of angry Jewish fathers and young men and women killing Nazis with their bare hands, raiding them in the middle of the night, finding them in their homes, and, you know, doing what you should do to a Nazi, which is step on their throat until they can't breathe. So it was very aggressive. It was crazy, but the resilience of anyone Greek just seems to be ridiculous. And after the war, Greek was plunged into chaos because there was now a communist opposition growing in the government, and this led into a full-on civil war from 1944 to 1949. The Greek government was able to defend itself and win against the communists after many bloody battles. This fight, coupled with World War II, resulted in Greece being a wasteland of a lot of destruction. And in the post-war period, Greece had to focus a huge amount of its resources on reconstruction. Greece then joined NATO and other European alliances in order to better itself, but things got shaky once again in 1967. In 1967, the Greek junta, or regime of colonels, rose to power. This was a right-wing military junta that overthrew the government in 1974. The junta weakened Greece in many ways, and it strained relations with all its allies because no longer was Greece seen as a democratic nation. Civil rights were repressed, the press was removed, and so were opposition parties right around them. And this ended when Konstantinos Karamanlias restored true democracy and free elections to the nation in 1974. Karamanlias formed a new political party called New Democracy, which he positioned as a center-right party committed to democratic stability and economic development. One of his significant achievements was the overseeing of a new constitution being drafted, which was adopted in 1975. The new constitution reestablished democratic governance, safeguarded civil liberties, and reinforced the separation of powers. Karamanlias has a huge and very strong legacy across Greece. He is credited with laying the foundations of Greece becoming integrated with the European Union, and shaping the modern democracy and politics of Greece. Karamanlius's pragmatic and statesmanlike approach earned him respect both domestically and internationally. He remains a prominent figure in Greece's political history and is continuously used as an example of European success in politics in the face of true danger like a military junta in the post-World War II world. In 1981, Greece would go on to become a full member of the EU, 
And then that kind of rolls into the 2000s where things got tough once again. And that kind of gets us to where Greece is defined by what happens here. And a lot of things that happen here is what people think of when they think of Greece after they think of all the great things they did in ancient times. So in 2001, as Greece was trying to adopt the euro, there was a scandal where Greece started to default a lot of loans and debts started to rack up because of the fact that they transitioned from the drachma, which was the longest continuously used currency in the world up until the adoption of the euro. The use of the drachma was now kind of being interfered with because of the fact that the euro was coming in, and a lot of the big heads of banking and the government were trying to sneak out with as much money as they can. People were trying to embezzle money for themselves, and it ended up leading to a lot of international lawsuits with the World Bank and things like that, which meant that Greece couldn't get any financial help for the next few years, so the economy weakened. On top of that, the 2008 financial crisis caused the nation to rapidly decline. The nation was hurt even further by the fact that the migrant crisis was spreading to Western Europe. These migrants were coming from the war-torn nations of Syria, Yemen, and the ones that started to get into really big civil conflicts throughout the 2010s, and this just made it even harder for the country. So, in the next few years, a recovery program would be enacted. Greece received financial assistance from the international institutions known as the Monetary Fund, the European Central Bank, and the European Commission. These institutions, collectively known as Troika, provided bailout packages to Greece to stabilize its economy and prevent a deeper default on all the debt it had incurred. Austerity measures were put in place to reduce the budget deficit and cut public debt. These measures included cuts nationwide, limited public spending, and pension reforms anywhere they could get the chance. Taxes increased and labor markets reformed. These policies were often met with public protest and opposition due to their impact on living standards because now is one of those things where the banks are doing everything they can with support of the government to stabilize because that's the thing that happens in America. It happens in many countries where the government will happily bail out banks and things of that sort but will not bail out people who are struggling. And this is what happens here. The banks are doing all these austerity measures and all this to help themselves and help the economy get back up. But people's living standards were declining because now they couldn't afford day-to-day stuff. And one of the biggest things in... Greece's recovery is the tourism industry. The country's rich cultural heritage, natural beauty, and all the historical sites here had always been attracting tourists, but in the modern age, it had been made so that there was no more wars to worry about. Greece had become very safe, and now efforts were being made to promote Greek agricultural products and exports on top of all the beauty that was there. So now the idea of Greece became very romanticized, and people started to really travel there. And on top of this, Steps were taken to mitigate the social impact of the vulnerable population. Some programs were finally initiated to provide assistance to those that were unemployed, and it also wanted to help those that were suffering from the social services being cut in order to save the banks and the economy. And now, Greece is finally at a point where it's pretty stable, and we're very happy to say that Greece is becoming very democratic again. Things are back into a safe place. There are a lot of issues with corruption, but... That's neither here nor there, as there's still very competitive political parties that get voted in and out all the time, and the elections are pretty clean. So, a thing to talk about now that we're in 2023 is wildfires broke out across the Greek island of Evla. They are considered the worst in Greece's history, and they are causing massive evacuations and have no clear end in sight. It's caused a lot of displacement of people who live on this island and is definitely hurting the infrastructure of the nation, which is heartbreaking. And that gets us to the present, where today it is ranked as a very highly developed country and is very politically sound, but there is still concern over migrants and asylum seekers 
quality of life once they come to Greece because Greeks are very traditionalistic people and there's a lot of reports of abuse and mistreatment under the Greek government or Greek people for people that come from Muslim countries. But Greece is one of the most storied nations on earth and today it is one of the most visited nations in the world with about double the amount of people that live in the country coming to visit the country each year. And Greece is the cradle of democracy, the backbone of Western philosophy, and one of the most influential nations on earth, which you could probably tell by the fact that I just talked for 70 minutes. So with that being said, that gets us to the very end where I like to leave it with a takeaway or a mindset. And in this case with Greece, that is going to be be stoic. Now, definitely pick this with very much thought in my head of Greek philosophers and things of that, but the reason I say that is because Greece has had a rough history since the turn of the eras. It is known for its beauty and the Greek gods and mythology, the beautiful structures, the Parthenon, all the beauty and the influence it's had on the world, the democracy, the history, the medicine. Everything Greece has done for the world and given to the world has literally shaped the world we know today. You don't have the Roman Empire without Greece, you don't have Europe without Greece, you don't have America without Greece. Ancient Greece and classical age Greece forms what we know in the Western world today. It's just the truth. But they had a rough run as soon as Rome came, the Eastern Romans came, and the Ottomans came. And it was a brutal time. So much so that Greek culture started to dwindle, growth started to dwindle, abuses were rampant, their religion started to falter, everything went wrong for them. But the only way the Greeks got through was by literally spending the entire 18 and 1900s, is by literally spending a century from the mid-1800s all the way to the mid-1900s fighting and defending themselves in a very stoic way against all that was coming towards them. And for them, this was, in the early 1800s, the still biggest empire that was touching Europe. It was one of the biggest powers in the world at the time still, and despite the Ottomans declining, they were still very scary. They still outnumbered the Greeks, but the Greeks fought, and the Greeks fought in one of the bloodiest wars Europe had seen in a long time, and it was brutal, but they fought for independence, and then fought to maintain it, and then fought to expand this independence to all their colonies. That takes being stoic. It takes going through a lot of pain and struggle and loss and hardship and still pushing forward. And Greece has embodied that. That's why its people are so famously strong mentally. The The old people are so stuck in their traditionalistic ways and their hardcore because they've seen some hardcore stuff in their lifetime. And that's taught to all Greeks. They are very hard people. They're tough. They're rowdy. They're very prideful because they know what they've been through. And that you know image you get in your head of an old stoic Greek that reminds you of a ancient Greek is true because these are very stoic people with a history that has required them to be very stoic. And I say 100% apply that with you. You're going to go through disgusting times in your life. It's just the truth. You're going to go through nasty breakup. You may go through something very terrible that I won't even say. It could be horrible, horrible losses and accidents and terrible things that really mess with your psyche, your emotions, your physical, everything. The only way to get through that is by stealing your mind and stealing your heart and knowing that if you bear down and bite your knuckles, and do everything you can to get through, you'll get through. The only way forward is through is to survive and to be calm and collected and face all of your fears head on with stoicism. And being stoic in all those scenarios is literally what all those things are. That's the definition of stoicism is having that calm ability to take anything on when it comes your way. And that's not saying you can't cry. You can't feel pain. You can't shout and scream about it. But let that happen when it's a safe place. Once you're either out of it or once you're in a place where you are 
safe to do this and not be judged and not be taken down for it. But when it comes to the actual adversity, people trying to hurt you, any of these things, stand on your two feet and push hard against anyone who tries to do this. Because if not, you will suffer a lot of struggle and that can be brutal. So I say one more time, be very stoic, just like the Greeks. That gets us to the very, very end. And that is my goodbye. Love Greece. Love the history. Loved everything about this. It was a very fun country to do. I had to dig very deep because it's Greece and I wanted to do it with the proper respect. It has, you know, with 3,000 years of written, recorded history. It's a lot. And of course, we sped run certain parts, but I feel like we did a very good job. So, truly, I'm so glad you guys were here. And I want to say thank you so much for being here. And one more time, my name is Reese Karlinski. This is Young History. And that was the great nation of Greece. You guys have a good one.